0: If going back to education is the only way to achieve your dream career, where do you start? That's one of the things we discuss in this episode. I'm Jeremy Klein and this is Change Work Life. Welcome to Change Work Life, the podcast that's all about beating the Sunday evening blues and enjoying Mondays again. This week, I'm interviewing Lauren Bartley. Lauren works with young adults who've come through the care system to overcome the challenges to prevent them going to higher education. Also, she's a career coach, and as well as her work with young adults, we talk about how she works with clients who want to change career, especially those who want to go back to university. Hi, Lauren. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi there. Thanks for having me.
0: First of all, could you tell us a bit about what it is that you do?
1: Yes. My main gig, as it were, is I work in a further education college, and that's mainly 16 to 19-year-olds that I'm supporting. In particular, uh, looked after children in care. But as a sideline to that, I also provide career advice and guidance. So for adults or young people looking to change direction, maybe return to study, not happy where they're at, and they can see me outside of those hours for impartial advice and, and guidance.
0: So the uh, working in the Further Education College, and you mentioned particularly working for children in care, how did, is that something that you've always done, or is that something that you've changed to in your career?
1: I specialised in it. I started out in student support, but it was more general support. So anything around safeguarding concerns or welfare um, support and then the opportunity arose to work specifically acting as what's called the designated teacher. Every school and college usually has one, and the role is to really lift the achievement of that group of students. So their education outcomes have generally been pretty abysmal compared to the mainstream population. Something like 6% of care leavers go to university, whereas it's about 50% of the general population. The role is, it's really rewarding, but it's really hard, is trying to get them to see the potential in themselves that they've got and kind of raise their own aspirations.
0: And just briefly, what are the the blocks? What are the reasons? Why is it that only 6% of kids who are in care go to university as opposed to 50% of the general population?
1: I don't think there's any one thing. I think increasingly, it's my opinion that the outcomes you see for yourself are ingrained very young by your parents and their expectations and their lifestyle. And so if their formative years are in a household where people didn't go to university and they don't see themselves as, I mean, I say this because it's something I've heard young people say, they're not university people then that a very impressionable age to get that view. So I'm seeing them at 16, whereas they might have had that view by six. Um, So I've got to kind of undo a decade of that thinking. I think that if they know that they're part of a group that is labelled as having poor outcomes, I wonder if it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy as well. I think if you're being told, oh, you've got all these professionals working around you because you're not going to do very well educationally, does that become... What they're told enough times that it becomes true. I don't know. I would hope not, but I do wonder.
0: So that's your main gig. What motivated you to start doing career coaching on the side?
1: Well, I'd undertaken the career advice and guidance diploma with the view that it's a useful string to my bow when I'm working with young people because if I'm having those conversations about pathways through to whatever their career aspiration is, um, then I need to be equipped to do that. But I was noticing increasingly that actually people I know in my personal life, family, friends, they were wanting to change direction. And I kind of put two and two together and thought, hang on, there's there's a need here for professionals to be able to do that outside office hours. And then I had my baby. So that was less than a year ago. And I reduced my main job hours. So this is a nice little side hustle, I suppose, you could call it.
0: Okay, it was kind of a combination of seeing the issues that your friends and family were facing, plus the fact that you were already kind of in that space anyway and had done the diploma and and anything. Absolutely, yeah. Was there anything additional that you needed to do apart from already having had the diploma in order to start providing this advice to adults and career changers?
1: I think the information that you have, you'll never be good at it if you think you know everything right off the bat and you're fully informed because if you imagine every sector has its own regulatory bodies, it has its own expectations for staff, and it's just ever-changing. The labour market information that you have is ever-changing. So just when you think you know it, you almost have to re-educate yourself again and again. And it's not unusual for me to be sat with a client, almost learning with them what we're finding out together. And in that respect, what they're getting from me is I'm showing them where to be checking this information. But yeah, you can't sit on your levels and think, oh, OK, I know it, because it just isn't the case.
0: And you mentioned that you recently had a baby about a year ago. So how does family life and your day job and this all fit together? What are the, the challenges with doing that and how do you make that work?
1: The most obvious challenge, and I'm sure anyone who's got young children can relate, is a childcare issue. But in a way I can turn that on its head and one of the things that I make sure clients know is that I am child friendly if they want to book a session with me and bring their child along. It doesn't bother me in the slightest. Actually, a lot of the clients I see are mums who they either never finished study the first time round or they haven't prioritised it. They've prioritised family life and now the kids are going to school and then they're thinking, hang on a minute, I've got this free time. Why am I not returning to study? The experience now makes me able to relate even more to those clients that I've worked with. And I just think your time becomes so much more precious that you think, am I spending it in a meaningful way? You feel like you're forever juggling plates with work and family and all these commitments. So you think, when it is so precious, am I happy with what I'm doing? And I think that makes people go, maybe I'm not. Maybe I want to be in a different field altogether.
0: And how do you manage that personally, juggling the individual coaching, the day job and the childcare?
1: I'm very lucky to have family nearby, so I'm able to call on them from time to time. My husband's very supportive, so he's happy to be as hands-on as he can be. But it's hard sometimes. Well, you'll know from from setting up this interview that I wasn't as responsive as I might like to have
0: been. (laughs) Not at all, not at all.
1: So, yeah, it's a balancing act. You feel like you're walking a tightrope. But, you know, everything's temporary.
0: So who's your sort of typical coaching client or do you have a typical coaching client? What sort of people have you been helping since you started?
1: I've definitely had more female clients. Typically, I I wouldn't say there's a typical. I said before, yeah, I've done a bit of work with parents who are returning to work. So they've done okay. They've they've maybe done GCSEs or A-levels typically they're with maybe a major employer and have worked up so they may have joined something like Tesco's and they're now a customer service team leader or something like that where they're doing okay but they're maybe not as fulfilled as they might be and they decide actually I'd like to be a nurse or a midwife how do I get into that kids are now at school I want to do something for me I can't see myself being on a customer service desk for the next 40 years so there's those clients and. There are the clients who are very well-educated, very intelligent, very accomplished, almost to the point that it's a bit daunting to work with them because I sometimes find myself thinking, surely you can work this out. But I suppose they've been so successful in one field that moving into another, that they're so embedded in one particular sector that another field is completely alien. And those clients are more like a sounding board to explore what is their priority. I suppose. So if I give you an example, there was a client who, she speaks a couple of languages, she's published, she's medium to senior within the sector, but traveling a lot. So the aim of changing was to not be traveling, but was looking at a different field altogether. But then it became, well, what is it you like about this job that you can see in another? Because she was so embedded in the sector, she had quite a big picture view of it so therefore any new sector I was showing her she was looking at the big picture as though she was at a strategic level does that make sense yeah yeah and I was actually to pick apart well what is it you like that's transferable because you've got a great skill set here but you can't expect that you're going to sidestep straight into a strategy role so actually is your priority being in the local area is it travel to the point of not commuting or is your priority that the day to day tasks you're carrying out align with what you like about your existing role and that those the really interesting clients actually because I think you learn more about them and if you're interested in people and you kind of tend to spend a bit more time Understanding them and where they're at and what they're doing, but you're almost like a sounding board. That's almost like a counselling approach to career guidance because they very often they have the answer. They know it, but it takes them a bit of using you as a sounding board to reach a decision or to find out that they know the answer. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that does. The example that you give is quite an interesting one, and the, the fact that she was in a senior role, a very sort of strategic role, and you had the conversation about not necessarily being able to expect to go into a similar role in something different. There seems like there's an element of compromise there or an element of, well, you need to knock yourself a few rungs back down the ladder and then work yourself back up. I mean, how do clients face that, particularly those that have been used to being in a senior role and kind of want to continue that, but do want something else, either reduced hours or a reduced commute or whatever it might be?
1: I don't think that's always the case. But I think it depends what other factors are at play. I sometimes liken it to house hunting in that you, if you're buying a house, something's got to give, whether it's price, location or size of the property, something is inevitably the compromise you make. And job hunting is a little bit like that as well. You've got location, salary and seniority or fulfillment. And some people do sidestep and, and it's a similarly strategic role. But if you're net you're absolutely committed to not leaving the town that you're in, for example, then I can't tell you that there's the job that right there in that town that means you're able. Whereas if you're happy to travel for an hour, well that broadens the circle of jobs open to you. So it's very it's almost it's a bit boring to factor in the practicalities because it's much more fun to sort of aspire to have any job and and we should start with what's the what's the top aspiration but the reality is then you you wait up against okay well do you have to be back at nursery by six okay well then this is only good if you can negotiate these hours or you know these days from home as you say so again that's where the sounder board comes in because people don't always necessarily know their priorities till they speak to me or anybody and start imagining themselves doing it
0: you mentioned the various different factors that you put into place, so you know, location, commute, salary, seniority, and you mentioned fulfillment there as well. When you're coaching people, this sounds like a silly question, but do you coach them that they should be trying to find a role which will be fulfilling? Or is that a factor which is also a compromise one amongst all the other factors?
1: It's one of the questions I pose to them because some people like to think more with their head and some do with their heart. And the dream is that both are satisfied. But if they tell me that it's less important that they feel fulfilled and it's more important that criteria A, B, C are met, then that becomes the brief. But part of the reason I like to understand what gets them up in the morning is that Sometimes the things that they think they like about the job, or there's, they might have overlooked some of the things that they do enjoy. So, one of the things that I love, for example, is I know two days are alike. I never know what I'm going to walk into. And I like that I'm granted quite a bit of autonomy. Those having identified that, I know a different role I'd, I'd want to have those things. But actually, I don't know if I'd feel concerned about what the sector was. If I had those other things I like about the job, I think I wouldn't mind what the overall service was. So for some people, I get them to talk me through their day and what aspects do they like, what do they not. Or I do an exercise with showing them job descriptions and person specifications and get them to pull out what do you hate, highlight in red, what you hate, highlight in green, what you like. And it's interesting because quite often they'll see the job title and then they'll turn their nose up and say, that's not for me. I don't like it at all. But when they go through the job description, there's a lot of green. and They go, oh, this, yeah, no, I like this. I really enjoy delivering training or I really like being part of a small team. Understanding that about them can help both of us find better roles, even if they don't 100% tick every
0: box. You mentioned adult learners and those who maybe want to go back into education, how important is it before embarking on that route that you've got an idea what you want to do and where it wants, where you want it to lead to? And I ask that because I I sometimes see comments from people, I want a career change and I'm thinking of going back to school to study, blah, blah, blah. Do you think that's a good idea? To me, it sounds like that question is coming in too early. And actually, the more important question is, well, what are you going to do after it? I mean, is it is the case? Should one focus first on what they might want to do as a career and then focus on what education needs are required to get there?
1: Yeah, I would say so. Because as an adult, to go back and study, it's a really tricky commitment. I think even if you haven't got kids, Chances are you're reducing your income while you're studying. So the commitment financially and what that the implications are for your household, as well as for your lifestyle, if you're now having to take home X amount of hours of guided reading that you're, you should be doing. So it's a big thing to undertake. So you want to know that if you're going to make those sacrifices, leave a, an existing job, hold back on holidays and going out, that's going to take you where you want to be. I can see that for some people, if they just love a particular subject and they are enough of an entry level position that anything they do is going to be a step up, then maybe in those instances, study without plans could be okay. But really, you want to know that what you're doing is going to get you where you want to be.
0: The example you gave of someone who was, say, in you know, a customer service manager at a supermarket who wanted to go into nursing. What does the education path look like for that person? I mean, assume that they've, I don't know, they've done some A-levels, maybe not got the best of results, but now they want to go into nursing. What's actually involved in terms of study?
1: Depending on what their A-levels were, um, they may be able to go ahead and apply to universities and jump straight in at degree level study. But if they haven't got the sciences that underpin it, they might like to consider doing what's course and access to higher education. That a one-year programme, it's A-level level, level, but it's designed for adults who are returning to education. It's got three or four different pathways, and one of them is nursing and midwifery. And so they might do that, get that level three under their belt, and then as part of that course, apply through the UCAS process, and then do the degree the, the following year. So that's a one-year rather than two-year, unlike A-level.
0: Is that a one-year full-time course?
1: It's full-time from the point of view of funding and time commitment, but actually face-to-face teaching isn't a huge amount. It's only a couple of days, but it's a lot of self-directed study in between. Because it is trying to get people ready for university-level study, there's a lot of expectation that you go away, you do the reading, you do the assignments. So it can be a bit of a shock to the system for some adult, some carry on part-time around that. But that's why I say you want to know that it's the right pathway because it's a big commitment if you're undertaking what is essentially a full-time course alongside your other commitment.
0: So is it it presumably from what you're saying, it's not something that realistically you could do with a full-time job? Going back to your customer service manager example, would they pretty much have to take reduced hours and consequent pay cut in order to do this?
1: I would think so. Yeah, I'm not saying it never happens, but I think you have to kind of be superwoman or superman to do it. And actually, do you really want to? A year is a long time to be that tired and stressed if you're doing it. As much as you don't want the salary cut, actually, you've got to be. You've got to look after yourself, haven't you? And if you're doing full time hours and full time study, where's the downtime? I'd argue you'd probably that your assignments would suffer and your work would probably suffer as a result of taking on a bit too much.
0: I can see that being a real roadblock for people. So someone who feels that you know they just can't give up the income. How would you talk to someone so that they can kind of see the options open to them and not just go, oh, well, it's impossible, I can't do it?
1: Sometimes it is impossible. That sounds awful. It sounds quite defeatist. But I think it's better that they know it up front than start getting excited and making applications and then that comes at the last point they find this out and then are disappointed to find they can't do it when they'd already felt quite emotionally invested in the idea. But sometimes it presents an opportunity for a career change in in the interim. So if their existing job is within core office hours, do we then find something that on a weekend that will hide them over while they're doing this course, because the course will be on a weekday. So that can sometimes happen.
0: Okay, so it's rather than going, I can't do it, it's being a bit creative and thinking, how can you do it?
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: And then once you've done the access course and you're through to university, again, is that something that it's possible to work around a job or is that really a case of, no, three years, no income, maybe working in a bar in the evenings or something like that?
1: I think, again, you'd be ambitious to do it full-time, but then I'm hearing myself say that, and I'm reminded of my own route through education, and I was working full-time when I did my degree, but my degree was part-time. So I studied at Birkbeck, which is part of the University of London. And when I tell people about it, they have never heard of it. And I'm staggered because I just think it's wonderful. It's a brilliant institution. So I love telling people about it. It's degree courses taught in the evening. So the example we just spoke about with nursing and midwifery, they don't offer that, but they do offer a whole host of other subjects. I did psychology with them and loved it. It was brilliant. So that's one way to be creative about doing both at once.
0: And in terms of what you're doing, do you think that you will carry on with this split role? Do you think that you'll transition into doing the coaching full-time? Where do you think you might go in, say, five years?
1: Oh, I ask myself that all the time. (laughs) I've noticed something about myself, which is that I very often have two concurrent roles and I don't know what it is about that whether I don't, I don't know, it makes me wonder if I'm maybe non-committal. I'm not sure. But earlier on in my career, I'd sort of juggle two jobs or do a bit of bar work or, and it sort of stops and starts. And now that this is two again, I wonder if that just suits me to ha- to be able to wear a couple of hats. I'm not sure. The coaching, I would like to develop it more. I don't know. There's risk that comes with being self-employed. There's a lot of pluses, but there's, it's a nice security to know you've got your main thing to fall back on. I don't know. Maybe ask me in a few months when, or a couple of years when my daughter's kind of, I haven't got baby brain, maybe.
0: <laughs> I do know what you mean. I've got a three and a half year old, so uh, I can remember that. Lauren, this has been a really interesting conversation. In terms of a particular resource or book or anything which has particularly helped you, is there anything which you'd like to flag up and maybe recommend that other people consider taking a look at?
1: What I'd like to tell people is that when they, every college or most colleges will have a careers guidance officer or career advisor and their part of the role is that you're impartial. Yes, of course, the organisation they know the most about is going to be their own. But actually, if you turn up and have a chat with them about which career you want, and the programme of study to get you there isn't available, they will point you at the next organisation. They will refer you to the right college that does offer you the right path of study. And I don't know if people realise this. I think the worry is that if you walk into... A college they're going to have you sign up to that particular place of study and I'm sure that that does happen in some unscrupulous places but most places won't so what my advice would be is if somebody's listening and they think oh I'd like to maybe enter study I don't know what to do or how I would go about that make an appointment with your nearest college have a chat with them and don't feel you owe them any kind of commitment to a course there you are initially just finding out what is the right pathway, not who is going to deliver you that pathway. And and once you leave and you know that, then you can decide where you want to study and maybe it'll be that place, maybe it'll be somewhere else. But I just, I don't think people know that they should be impartial.
0: I certainly didn't even know the service existed. So is that something that anyone can go to at any college?
1: Yeah, I'd call ahead. They may well have set days and times, but also when open days are advertised, that they would normally staff open days as well. So yeah, call ahead and check when's a good time to come in because they'll prioritise existing and continuing students most of the time. But they should be able to offer you a time to come in and have a chat as a prospective
0: student. That's really interesting. I have to say, I never knew that that existed as a resource. That's really quite valuable. Lauren, if people want to work with you, where can they find you and get in touch?
1: They can email me at careercope.com hitchin at gmail.com. And my website is also career coach Hitchin And if you're not local to Hitchin, Hitchin's got a T in. It's H-I-T-H-I-N.
0: Fantastic. I will put a link to that in the show notes for this episode. Lauren, thank you very much. Thanks, Jeremy. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Lauren Bartley. It's interesting. I'd always taken it as an article of faith that we should be looking for fulfillment in our job, given that you know, how much time we spend at work. It was really interesting to hear what Lauren was saying about whether finding fulfillment in other areas of life is sufficient and that maybe it's okay if work is one of the less fulfilling aspects of our lives. It goes back to what Mio Yokoi was saying in last week's episode. Maybe we just do need to find fulfillment in different areas of our lives and maybe work might not be one of those areas. You'll find contact details for Lauren on the show notes page for this episode. That's at changeworklife.com forward slash 32. And did you know that on the show notes pages for each episode, there's transcripts, full transcripts of each interview. So if you're listening, maybe you're out and about and there's something that you wanted to revisit, as well as finding a player on the website, you can also find transcripts of each episode. You can download them as a PDF. If you haven't discovered those and think that might be useful to you, then do go and take a look. As always, we've got a great episode coming for you next week, and I can't wait to see you then. Cheers, bye.